You are listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies and the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu forward slash Ellison Center. I'm the outreach coordinator for the Ellison Center. Now I want to introduce Susan Jakes, who is uh, a journalist and author who flew in this morning from LA and literally last second um, landed and came straight here from the airport. So we are very happy that you made it. And uh, I will just turn it over to you to talk about the book. Okay. Well, uh, first off, thanks, Val, for the invitation to come speak here. Uh, at the Ellison Center, and I'm really happy to be here uh, to talk about my new biography of Catherine the Great, The Empress of Art. And as I mentioned, uh, I wrote this book, it's just come out, and I wrote it because there wasn't another biography about Catherine's art and architecture. And as it turns out, um, she was as passionate about architecture and art as she was about her military conquests and her love affairs. Uh, and so it's a really fascinating uh, subject. And because we're a small group, I want to invite you, if you have a question, to just ask because um, I think we can have more of a discussion since we're a smaller group. Well, Catherine the Great uh, founded the Hermitage Museum and she did this in record time, uh, just over three decades. Uh, she founded it with 4,000 paintings and 10,000 drawings. And she also embarked on a building spree during her reign. And she turned St. Petersburg into a beautiful neoclassical capital. And today I'd like to talk with you about why art and architecture was so important to Catherine, what she collected, and how she collected. So to answer the first question, why was art so important to Catherine, uh, it's necessary that we go back and we look at how she came to power. Uh, so as you probably know, Catherine was born a minor German princess. She came to Russia at age 14 to marry the Grand Duke Peter. He was heir to the throne, and he was the grandson of Peter the Great. The arranged marriage was orchestrated by Peter's aunt, the Empress Elizabeth. And she had help in this from Prussia's Frederick the Great. Well, the marriage turns out to be a complete disaster. And in her memoirs, Catherine writes that she would have loved her husband if he'd been capable of love. <laughs> so uh, they really lead separate lives. And Catherine uh, has three uh, extramarital affairs. Uh, and her, the, uh, she has, at 25, Catherine gives birth to a baby boy named Paul. And uh, you see Paul in the middle here uh, as a young boy. And here's um, the Grand Duke Peter. This is Catherine's husband, the future uh, czar. And on the right is Count Sergei Saltikov, who was Catherine's first a lover uh, with her um, extramarital affair. Um, and there's always been this question about the paternity of Paul, which really raises the whole question about the whole Romanov line, because of course Paul succeeds Catherine the Great as Paul the First. 
Well, in January 1762, Peter succeeds his Aunt Elizabeth, and he um, takes over as Peter III. Uh, he makes two incredibly bad mistakes. First, and this is a time when Russia is winning the Seven Years' War against Prussia, Peter actually allies himself with uh, Frederick the Great of Prussia. And you, as you can imagine, this completely alienates the Russian church, the army, and the aristocracy. It couldn't have been a worse mistake. And he's, it, it, was, um, it was a very costly mistake. And then uh, the second mistake is Peter uh, threatens Catherine with arrest. And here I want to share with you um, uh, Catherine actually, uh, after um, Saltikov, she has an affair with a, uh, a Polish uh, nobleman named Stanislaus Panatowski, um, and they have together a baby girl named Anna, who actually dies in infancy. Um, and Peter got wind of the affair, and Stanislaus has to flee Russia. And um, we'll get to him later, because Catherine actually makes him her puppet king in Poland. He becomes the last king of Poland. But Catherine's next lover is the military hero Gregory Orlov, who you see here. And she has a son, Alexei, uh, just months after uh, Peter becomes czar. Well, so Catherine doesn't wait around to see if Peter's going to make good on his threat to arrest her. Um, instead, she stages a palace coup six months into his reign, and she proclaims herself empress. And quite conveniently, a few days later, Peter is strangled to death by the older brother of Gregory Orlov, Alexei Orlov. And uh, the palace issues a press release saying that the official cause of death of Peter is hemorrhoidal colic. <laughs> this is quite a nice spin. Uh, so, um, but it turns out that bumping off her unpopular husband was surprisingly easy. But Catherine finds herself on very shaky ground politically. And very interestingly, it's not because uh, of her power grab, because the Romanovs did this all the time. And it's not even because she's a woman. There had been three Tsarinas before Catherine. Her problem is that she's German. And as I mentioned, uh, Russia's just fought Prussia uh, in the Seven Years' War. And here they have a German Tsarina, so this is her problem. So what does she do? She does something very clever. She takes up the westernizing mantle of her grandfather-in-law, Peter the Great. Her husband's grandfather, Peter the Great, was the great westernizer of Russia. She takes up his mantle. He becomes her role model. And brilliantly, she uses art and architecture as tools to westernize Russia and to charm Europe. Oh, I just want to go back and t talk to you about the crown. Uh, so from the start, Catherine uses portraiture to fashion her image as Russia's enlightened ruler. So this is the enlightenment. This is uh, the end of the 18th century. And I wanted to share, this is one of her favorite portraits, uh, the, her portrait on her horse, Brilliant. And this is a Swedish portraitist, Vigilius Eriksson. And he shows her in this wonderful military uniform with a tricorn hat. 
and she's about to ride with 14,000 troops and demand that Peter abdicate. And no side this, saddle for Catherine. No, no side saddle. And apparently, just as she, um, before she did this, she had her hair done, apparently. <laughs> so she's very aware of her image. She's very aware that um, you know, this is an important moment for her. Um, and she wrote Stanislas Poniatowski, the, um, her former lover, um, who becomes king of Poland. She writes him, quote, I put on a guard's uniform and appointed myself a colonel, which was received with great enthusiasm. I mounted my horse. We left only a few men from re regiment to guard my son, who remained in town. She's referring to Paul. I then put myself at the head of the troops, and the whole night we rode toward Peterhof. Now, on the left is Catherine's lavish coronation crown, which you can see at the Kremlin Armory Museum with the other imperial regalia. Has anyone seen that yet? It's really worth the price of admission. It is spectacular. Um, and she orders this, uh, and I'd like to read you a short excerpt uh, about this crown. Um, and she hires uh, a a celebrated jeweler named Jeremy Posey. So Jeremy Posey, one of Russia's most celebrated diamond cutters, took his inspiration from ancient Byzantium. Two gold and silver half spheres represented the eastern and western empires of Rome. 5,000 large and small diamonds adorned the entire surface in a spectacular pattern of laurel wreaths, oak leaves, and acorns, symbolizing the temporal power of the monarchy. To outline the edges of the miters, Posey added two rows of gleaming white pearls, 75 in all. The arch between the spheres was topped with a nearly 400 carat ruby red spinel, reported to be the world's second largest, framed with diamonds and capped with a diamond cross. And Pauzy wrote about this, um, this was the commission of his life, and he wrote about it in his memoirs, and I'll just read you, um, quote, from all the items I chose what was most suitable, and as the empress, Catherine, wanted the crown to remain unaltered after the coronation, I chose the largest stones, diamonds, and cultured gems. And thus I created one of the richest objects that have ever existed in Europe. Despite the great care which we took to make the crown as light as possible, using only essential materials, in the end, it still weighed five pounds. And at the time, the crown was valued at two million rubles, roughly an eighth of the annual state budget of the Russian Empire. <laughs> Thrilled with the result, Catherine declared that she'd somehow managed to hold this heavy thing on her head during the four-hour ceremony. Pardon? Might cause a headache. Yeah, might cause a headache. And what's fun about this, you can read about it in chapter one, is that Catherine puts the crown on her own head. And this is something that um, Napoleon will do later on. Mm -hmm. um, so this is one of my favorite portraits. As I mentioned, um, Catherine, um, she's, she really understood the power of portraiture to fashion her image. Um, so she had many portraitists come to St. Petersburg. This is actually one of my favorites. Uh, it's in the, the book, in the photo insert. Um, it's Catherine Before the Mirror by the same artist as we saw the question, Erickson. But he's done something so interesting here. And I think I want to um, share this with you. So um, he has managed to show Catherine's public and private personas in one portrait. So facing us, we have Catherine's public persona. 
you see her, she's holding a fan in her right hand. Um, she's smiling. She's wearing this beautiful silver embroidered gown. She's very charming. Um, and actually, um, by all accounts of her contemporaries, uh, she just actually charmed the socks off of everyone. She was very charming. She was very self-deprecating. And um, this is interesting because Catherine is the smartest person in the room. And as you can imagine, this would be very threatening for a woman ruler to be so bright. And so she learns to adopt this charming um, persona publicly. Privately is another story. And if you look in the mirror, do you see, can you see the, I'll try to, can you see this expression? Her reflection is not at all like the, the woman that we see facing us. Okay, she is looking pretty ambitious and pretty determined in the mirror. And I find it so interesting that Erickson is able to, in this one portrait, give us the whole picture. And this is what is so fascinating. I think this is why we're so fascinated by Catherine the Great. She's a very complex woman. And she really adopted this persona because uh, for political survival, she needed to be charming and be self-deprecating. And I just want to read you Frederick the Great of Prussia, who remember he helped arrange her miserable marriage. Okay, he totally had no idea what he was doing, you know, what was going to happen. And he writes about Catherine. Uh, he says, quote, her spheres of activity encompass everything. No aspect of government escapes her. She's a living reproof to all those drowsy monarchs on their thrones who have no comprehension of the plans she is executing. So he, Frederick, quickly learned not to underestimate Catherine. Well, one of her plans was gaining access uh, for Russia to the Black Sea using Poland. And so as I mentioned, uh, she maneuvers um, her way to replace the Saxon elector, who was the king, also the king of Poland. She replaces him with her former lover, Stanislas Poniatowski. And really, he is her puppet king in Poland. And we can get into it, but she will wind up partitioning Poland out of existence. In 1795, um, Poland ceases to exist, and she dethrones Poniatowski. But um, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself. But she used Poland for her uh, to have access um, to the Black Sea. Okay, um, as I mentioned, um, Catherine went on a building spree. And this, I want to share, this is her very first commission after she becomes empress. This is called the Chinese Palace. It's at Iranianbaum, which was one of the Romanov's summer compounds. Um, and she hired, um, actually, her husband's architect, Antonio Rinaldi, to design an intimate secluded retreat. Uh, and she intended to use this as um, a place for romantic trysts with Gregory Orlov. Now, uh, the style was Rococo. Um, and you know you may know that that's kind of a whimsical. Um, it's very light and frothy. Inside, there were images of muses and art and love. And there were also, um, inside were um, several rooms with chinoiserie decoration, which is after the um, Chinese style. Uh, which is a really fantastic, beautiful style. Um, and this is very interesting because this is one of the few palaces that Catherine uh, built that survived uh, the Nazi siege of Leningrad. And you can actually visit the Chinese palace. Uh, 
It's amazing. There's um, one of the rooms inside is called um, the bugle bead room, and the walls are literally shining with um, it's embroidered panels with beadwork. It's extraordinary. Well, Catherine is soon going to abandon this style. She is going to usher in a completely new architectural style into Russia called neoclassicism. And so we're going to get into that. So, and this is fun. So Catherine also built palaces, not just for herself, but for her favorites. And here you see on top, this is Gachina Palace, also by Rinaldi. This was for Gregory Orlov. This was his hunting lodge. This is his country house estate. Um, and that is located some 30 miles southwest of St. Petersburg. And um, Rinaldi had been to England, and he was inspired by the castles he'd seen. And he combined the English castle with um, a royal hunting lodge and um, different styles. To, this is kind of a fortified. Uh, it's kind of a combination of various styles. Um, and below is the Marble Palace, which is today's Russian museum. And it's right on the Neva River at the end of the palace embankment. Um, this is also Rinaldi. Uh, Catherine instructed Rinaldi to use newly discovered marble from the Urals and Siberia, along with marble from Greece and Italy. And one visitor, the Swiss mathematician Jean Bornoli raved that the palace, quote, is embellished with marble doors and window cornices. The walls of the staircase are faced with marble panels. It's absolutely the most beautiful palace in St. Petersburg, and although smaller, surpasses even that of the Tsar. Now, something interesting happens. Um, after Gregory Orlov's death, Catherine buys back both of these palaces. And Gachina becomes her son Paul's favorite getaway. And the marble palace uh, she gives to her second oldest grandson, Constantine, as a wedding present. And this is a pattern. When, she, when a lover predeceased uh, pre her, she will buy back all her gifts. It's very interesting. <laughs> I think she knew that she would wind up with things. And we'll see that again with uh, Gregory Potemkin. In addition to palaces, Catherine lavished her favorites with gifts. And here are two wonderful examples. Um, now, the silver tureen on the left was from, from one of the largest orders of French silver ever produced. It was 3,000 pieces from the prestigious uh, French firm Rocher. They were goldsmiths to the French court. The price tag was excessive even for Catherine. Uh, in today's currency, the cost was over $4.3 million, which comes out to $1,400 per piece. Well, um, Catherine wound up giving this to Orlov when she broke up with him. It was kind of a peace offering. Because his family was very um, important. She never forgot that she owed her reign to the Orlov brothers. And so um, she, after a decade, she breaks up with Gregory Orlov. And you know, he wanted to marry her. That wasn't, she really had outgrown him. And she wasn't about to do that. And so this, a 3,000 piece silver service was kind of a peace offering. And then on the right, uh, on the right, this is a, um, a potpourri vase. And it's decorated with classical 
um, figures. It's by a smith, a, a goldsmith named Jean-Pierre Ador, and he was one of many jewelers who came to St. Petersburg, um, lured by um, Catherine the Great's um, largesse. I mean, she was um, she she uh, provided the goldsmiths with. Uh, quite a livelihood, and so a lot of European goldsmiths came to St. Petersburg. And the vase is capped with a perforated cover to allow the fragrance to um, permeate and waft. And on the top you can see the gold putti, and they're holding an oval shield with Gregory Orlov's monogram in gold Cyrillic letters. Can you see that? Right here. Oh, I should mention that um, when Orlov died, um, Catherine got the, his presents back, and she bought the presents back from Orlov's heirs, and she took off the monogram on all the, the rodeo silver pieces. She had the, his monogram erased. Well, um, here you see um, two of her, um, two paintings from her very first paintings acquisition. So two years into her reign, 1764, she acquires her first paintings. And this is more about political revenge than about um, art appreciation, because it really fell into her lap. Um, a Berlin entrepreneur named Johann Gutzkowski had assembled a collection for Frederick the Great. But after the Seven Years' War, Frederick doesn't have money to buy the paintings. And Gutzkowski is facing bankruptcy. So he offers his, these paintings earmarked for Frederick to Catherine um, to, you know, in lieu of his, uh, his debt. Um, and so these were two of the first pictures that came to the Winter Palace. Uh, Franz Hall's young man with a glove on the left and Udry's dog pointing a partridge. Um, these pictures from Berlin whetted Catherine's appetite for art, and she recruited art agents across Europe to keep an eye out for sales of old masters. And among her agents was the uh, French philosopher Denis Diderot, Paris's leading art critic. And you remember him? You may remember him from the Encyclopédie that he was he edited. Well, Catherine's first major acquisition arrived in 1769. Um, and after the Seven Years' War, Saxony's Prime Minister, Heinrich von Brühl, he was found guilty of misappropriating funds from the Saxon treasury. And his debt-ridden heirs were forced to sell his paintings and drawings. And here are two works. Um, and these are two out of 350 paintings that Catherine acquired. On the left is The Flight to Egypt, and this is an early work by Titian, the Venetian Renaissance great. And on the right is a mythological painting by Flemish Baroque artist Peter Paul Rubens. It's called Perseus Liberating Andromeda. Now, the Brule acquisition also came with over 10,000 drawings. So with this, Catherine established um, the Hermitage's drawings collection. Well, around this time, Catherine starts a relationship with the charismatic military hero, Gregory Potemkin. And some historians believe that they may have secretly married. Uh, they're a couple for just two years, but they remain devoted to one another. And Potemkin is the only one of all of Catherine's lovers who's her intellectual equal. And she's the only one that 
he is the only one that she delegates responsibility to. And he convinces Catherine to actually annex the strategic Crimea Peninsula uh, in 1783. And in, in return, Catherine turns Potemkin into one of Europe's wealthiest, most powerful men. So um, here is a portrait by uh, Johann Baptiste Lampi. And on the right, these are um, images of a fantastic porcelain service. It's called the uh, Sevres cameo service that Catherine ordered for Potemkin. Um, and this um, was really an extraordinary service. Uh, the king of France, Louis XVI, he lent the Sev factory his own antique cameos so they, for using as models for this service. And you can, you, I think you can see there's, um, this plate has uh, cameos. And this really reflects Catherine's absolute infatuation with antiquity. As I mentioned, she um, embraces neoclassicism, which um, was a result of the uh, excavations at Pompeii and Herculaneum and sort of rebirth of um, classical art and um, classical literature and philosophy. Um, and this porcelain service reflects her love of antiquity. Well, I just want to mention that when Catherine gets the bill for this service, she balked. It was so high. It was equivalent to about $40 million in today's money, $40 million. <laughs> It was a really um, very ambitious service. Everything about it was ambitious. Um, and the entire factory was devoted to making this service. Sev stopped making uh, other um, uh, services to do Catherine's commission. Um, so she, could, she refused to pay it. She negotiates an installment plan. And she finally pays the last installment uh, after the French Revolution. And the Sev factory is about to go bankrupt. So she kind of saved the day there with her last payment. Um, and in thanks for this wonderful gift, Potemkin gave Catherine a cat. I mean, what could he give her, right? She gives him a he gave her a cat, and, he, and she called this, quote, he of the velvety paws and the cat of all cats. Well, during her reign, Catherine waged two wars against the Ottoman Empire. She turned Russia's military conquests into an art genre, commissioning numerous propaganda sculptures, paintings, and decorative arts. In 1771, she wrote Voltaire, quote, if this war continues, my garden at Sarsko Selo will soon resemble a game of Skittles because I put up a monument there after each of our glorious battles. French jeweler Charles Jacques de Mailly created this inkstand on the right for Catherine's Chesme Palace, and it features miniatures of key military episodes. And Catherine's most ambitious war-themed commission was a series of paintings of Russia's naval victory at Chesme in the Aegean. And to help the artist depict the battle authentically, an old 60-cannon Russian frigate loaded with gunpowder was blown up in the harbor at Livorno. And the artist Jacob Hackert sketched the fiery event, this recreation from a small boat. And the result, you can see here, the destruction of the Turkish fleet in the Bay of Chesme. And you can see in the middle, the, um, this is the Turkish flagship um, just being destroyed and surrounded by um, ships of the Russian fleet. 
And the Russian fleet was uh, commanded by none other than Alexei Orlov, who, as we talked about, he was the one who uh, strangled uh, Peter III. And so here he is. <laughs> here he is leading the uh, Russian fleet. Although he had never um, been on a naval ship before, he leads this tremendous victory. Catherine snagged some of Europe's most prestigious art collections in their entirety. She acquired paintings two and 300 at a time. And this is really how she manages to put together this world-class collection in such a short time, because she was buying entire collections. Um, and these include the collections of the Parisian financier Pierre Crozat, and Britain's longest-running uh, Prime Minister, Sir Robert Walpole. So uh, for the Crozat deal, uh, Dennis Diderot negotiated this with uh, Crozat's heirs. And here are two masterpieces that came with that collection. Uh, Raphael St. George and the Dragon on the left, and uh, Giorgione's Judith on the right. And I'd just like to mention, and we can talk about this later, it's, it, the last chapter of my book deals with Catherine's legacy, what happened after she dies. Well, one of the things that happened was um, in 1929, 1930, Joseph Stalin started selling Hermitage masterpieces to get cash for his five-year plan. And one of the buyers was our US um, Treasury Secretary, Andrew Mellon. And he founds the National Gallery of Art in Washington, DC, with 21 Hermitage masterpieces. 15 of them were Catherine's paintings. And this Raphael, St. George and the Dragon, is have, have any of you seen it in Washington? It's a gem. It's so beautiful. It's just a gem. It's very small. It's beautiful. Um, and that was one of the 21 paintings that Mellon bought. And he bought them secretly, which is a really interesting story, but we can get into that more. And then um, Giorgione's Judith um, is at the Hermitage Museum, and it's an interesting shape. And it turns out that Giorgione painted this to decorate a piece of furniture, and that's why it's so long and narrow. And that's what um, Venetian, he was a, um, uh, a contemporary of Titian, and he died very young, but he, and so we don't have many of his works, uh, but um, this was thought to be part of a, a cabinet decoration. Now, seven years after the Crozat acquisition, Catherine unleashed a similar firestorm of protest in England when she secretly bought 200 of Robert Walpole's finest paintings from his grandson for about $10 million in today's money. And Walpole's collection was the closest thing to a national art collection in England. And there were calls in Parliament to um, stop the sale and buy the paintings. But that didn't happen. Uh, and I wanted to share with you, these are two of 20 paintings in Walpole's collection by Anthony Van Dyke, the Flemish Baroque master. He was Rubens' um, star apprentice. You may know Anthony Van Dyke. He spent time in England. And Walpole had 20 of his portraits. And these are just two. This is Lord Wharton on the left. Um, and this also in Washington, DC. This is one of the Mellon uh, acquisitions. And this is his daughters, Elizabeth and Philadelphia Wharton. And that's at the Hermitage. Well, before we get into the Bronze Horseman, um, I just want to mention that 
Europe is very alarmed at this moment. Uh, not only is Catherine snatching up their finest artworks, um, she's also grabbing territory. Um, as I mentioned, two wars against the Ottoman Empire and the annexation of the Crimean Peninsula in 1783 gave Russia a foothold in southeastern Europe and the northern shores of the Black Sea. And three partitions of Poland added another 185,000 square miles to Catherine's empire, including much of the Ukraine, Belarus, and Lithuania. Russia's population went from 23 to 37 million. And Russia becomes a global naval and commercial power, and Catherine finds herself running one of the world's wealthiest empires. So now, the bronze horseman. So um, as we've seen, Catherine used art brilliantly to legitimize her reign. Her most successful propaganda commission was this equestrian statue of Peter the Great. Uh, she hired a Parisian sculptor, Etienne Maurice Falconet. He was actually a modeler at the Sev a porcelain factory that we were talking about. He made little models. He had never done anything like this. He had never done anything. This is uh, three times life size in bronze. He had never cast a bronze before. But she hired him anyway because, um, because he uh, was also very knowledgeable about art. And he, he gave her art advice. Um, and um, so he was her sculptor, and he was also her art advisor. The project is surrounded by controversy and cost over overruns. It takes Falconet 12 years to finally finish this. And he finally leaves St. Petersburg. He goes back to Paris kind of in disgrace because he was a, he was a difficult character, and he made a lot of enemies while he was in St. Petersburg. So it's finally unveiled in 1782. It's time for the centenary of Peter the Great's coronation and the 20th anniversary of Catherine's ascension. Now, um, I don't know if you can see this, this inscription here um, on the plinth. And this is really interesting. Uh, Catherine orders this inscription in Cyrillic and Latin to Peter I from Catherine II. And by doing this, she forever links herself with the illustrious Peter the Great. And the sculpture is known today as the Bronze Horseman. It's uh, after Alexander Pushkin's famous poem. And having survived the siege of Leningrad, uh, it's become iconic, much like our Statue of Liberty. Well. Um, Early on, as a survival tactic, Catherine promoted herself through uh, the Enlightenment's most influential leaders, including Voltaire. And uh, she and Voltaire corresponded until Voltaire's death in 1778. And when he died, Catherine is generally distraught. In fact, she wants Voltaire to be buried in Russia. Well, that doesn't happen, but she orders this sculpture you see on the right, seated Voltaire. Uh, and it's from uh, Jean-Antoine Houdin, who's a very celebrated uh, Parisian sculptor. He had also sculpted uh, Catherine the Great earlier on. And a few years later, uh, Catherine purchased Houdin's Diana the Huntress that you see on the left. Well, uh, Catherine installed it in her, the grotto at Sarsko Cello, and later she, she acquired by accident a work by Michelangelo called Crouching Boy. And she put Michelangelo's Crouching Boy next to Diana by Houdin. 
Well, um, this particular sculpture was very controversial um, in Paris because um, Udon, as you can see, he's depicting Diana, um, not just nude, but really nude. <laughs> and um, this typically hadn't been done. She's usually partly covered and more modest. And so this was really mu too much um, uh, for um, his audience. And, um, and it's, it turns out, it's very interesting, because Catherine's successors thought that the sculpture was obscene, and they had it hidden away. And um, seated Voltaire, her grandson, her youngest grandson, Nicholas I, who becomes um, czar after Alexander I, uh, blames Voltaire for the French Revolution. And he actually had this sculpture moved someplace inconspicuous <laughs> where it wouldn't be seen. He was not a fan of Voltaire. Well, with boatloads of paintings arriving at the Winter Palace, Catherine needed more wall space for all these masterpieces. And so she starts adding on to the Winter Palace, building the large and small hermitages to display the paintings. Catherine became obsessed with building what she called, quote, a devilish affair. It eats money, and the more one builds, the more one wants to go on. It is an illness like drunkenness, she wrote. So Catherine embraces neoclassicism. This is the perfect complement to her political ambitions. The ultimate aim of her two wars with the Ottomans was called the Greek Project. Um, and she actually wanted to drive the Turks from Constantinople and resurrect a Greek Christian empire on the Mediterranean. She names her second grandson Constantine, and she grooms him, and he's supposed to rule this empire. Well, this doesn't happen. But this was her plan. Interestingly, Catherine never leaves Russia. Um, she experiences the world as an armchair traveler. She reads avidly. And in fact, her uh, library uh, is the foundation of the Imperial Russian Library. At the end of her life, she builds the what is today the Russian National Library. Um, then called the Russian Imperial Library, um, with her own uh, book collection. And it's interesting to note, um, it's very interesting, that this included her own books. So Catherine the Great wrote books. She wrote plays, poems, opera libretto. She wrote six volumes on Russian history. She wrote fairy tales for her grandchildren. So in her spare time, she was writing. And it's, it's a really incredible. She actually builds the Hermitage Theater, which after the large and small Hermitages, and you can see a play, you can see a performance today at the Hermitage Theater. She builds that to stage her own plays. So on the right is the Raphael Loggia. Uh, now, um, This is very interesting. Um, so she never went to Rome, but she never went, visited the Vatican. But someone gave her as a gift a book of engravings of Raphael's Loggia. Has anyone been to the Vatican here? Have you seen this? You may um, remember this is one of Raphael's early works uh, in Rome at the Vatican. The ceiling is got, has scenes of both the Old Testament and New Testament. 
and it's absolutely stunning. And Catherine immediately orders an exact replica for the Winter Palace, and she has her new favorite architect, Giacomo Corangi, who's um, from northern Italy. She has him design this vaulted arch in the exact proportions of the Vatican loggia, and she has artists um, replicating Raphael's beautiful biblical scenes um, to put here. So when you visit the Hermitage, you'll see Catherine's replica of Raphael's loggia. Well, around the same time that Giacomo Carangia arrives from Italy, another architect arrived named Charles Cameron. He was from Scotland. And he wrote a book about Roman baths. And Catherine was quite um, entranced by him. Um, and he was um, influenced by Robert Adam, you know, the, the British neoclassical architect. And she puts him to work. His first assignment is to completely redo Rastrelli's ornate interiors at the Great Palace, which is today's Catherine Palace at Sarscosello. Have you any of you been? Yes. So um, you may remember that Empress Elizabeth uh, hires Rastrelli, who also built the Winter Palace in St. Petersburg, to do um, the Great Palace. And it's named Catherine Palace later after her mother, who was Peter the Great's second wife, also Catherine. And two years later, Charles Cameron starts work on a two-story antique house. And this is Catherine's vision. Um, and above a luxurious spa complex inspired by the baths of ancient Rome, Cameron built an elegant pavilion. And he lined the rooms of this pavilion with beautiful jasper and agate. And if you visit, you must see this. It's absolutely spectacular. Um, it opened in 2014 after an extensive restoration. And you can see these beautiful materials he used. So to connect the Agate Pavilion and Catherine's private apartments, Charles Cameron designed a 90-yard long colonnade, which became known as the Cameron Gallery. And here on top is a picture of the gallery. Um, and it became Catherine's favorite promenade. It had views of the flower gardens on one side and her English park and the Great Pond on the other side. And here you see the view that she enjoyed of the Great Pond. And in between 44 white columns, Cameron placed busts of Catherine's favorite philosophers and statesmen. Well, Charles Cameron's next assignment was Pavlovsk, uh, a ducal villa for Catherine's son Paul and his second wife, Maria Fyodorovna. So he drew inspiration from Andrea Palladio's unfinished villa Trecino at Mileto. And it's interesting because Thomas Jefferson would later use the same villa to design the University of Virginia. The central three-story yellow and white building was capped dramatically with a shallow dome ringed by 64 columns. And also near Catherine Palace is Alexander Palace, which you see below. This was um, designed by Giacomo Quarenghi, her Italian architect. And this was Catherine's wedding present for her beloved grandson, Alexander. Well, it wasn't a secret that Catherine wanted Alexander to succeed her, not her son, Paul. Um, she and Paul have a terrible relationship. Um, basically, they hate each other. <laughs> and um, 
it's very complicated, but um, Catherine is threatened by Paul, and Paul is very resentful of Catherine. She, um, he's resentful of all her lovers and all the money she's spending on these lovers. Um, of course, you know, his father, he believes his father was Peter. His father's murdered um, by Orlov's older brother. So he has a lot of resentment toward Catherine, toward his mother and her lovers. And he has his own sort of political following. So uh, Catherine's quite threatened by him. At the same time, she needs him because she, he legitimizes her because he really is Peter um, the Great's uh, grandson's son, so maybe. <laughs> but for all intents and purposes, you know, he's the legitimate heir, and so he legitimizes Catherine. So it's a complicated story, but she doesn't think he's fit to rule. She thinks he's mad, in fact. Um, and some historians think that she was seriously considering changing the line of succession from Paul to his son, his eldest son, Alexander, uh, when she dies. Question. Yeah, please. Uh, where did she get the money for all these buildings and acquisitions of art? And yes, it's staggering. It's so staggering. And when, plus, when you think that she was buying back her gifts. So she didn't just, she built a palace for Orlov or Potemkin and then bought it back. So she's actually paying for it twice. Um, the money is all coming from the Russian treasury. And, you, you know, that's pretty much on the backs of... Um, most of the population, which were serfs. Um, and also at the time, um, Russia's discovering um, its natural resources, its mines, et cetera. Um, Russia's becoming, exporting timber. Um, and as I mentioned, um, she, well, we, there's a, I, I get into this in the book somewhat, but um, she uh, follows Peter the Great in um, really fostering the Russian economy. She encourages business and factories and modernization. And um, Russia becomes very wealthy. Um, and she's also, you know, she's seizing all this land. She's growing the empire. Um, you know, so there's grain, grain being um, produced and sold, and timber, and um, all kinds of um, natural resources. Um, and really, during her reign, she actually extends serfdom. Um, and we can talk about this a little bit. She, initially tries, right in the very beginning, um, she proposes reforms to Russia's laws. And you know it goes over very, very badly with Russia's aristocracy. And for political expediency, she drops it. She drops it like a hot potato. And actually, serfdom expands during her reign. Um, and so she's enlightened in terms of culture and art and architecture, but you know, in terms of politics, not so much. Does that answer your question? So the empire is growing. It's very wealthy. And she's, um, there's only one instance where she expresses any kind of a sense of um, um, frugality. Like she realizes that she may be overdoing it. But then, of course, you know, she continues. Like I think she told one of her agents, oh, no, don't send me any more, you know, paintings catalogs. Um, and then, of course, she, you know, keeps mying. So um, she's very interesting. She is um, hardworking. She gets up, you know, by all accounts at seven in the morning, goes to work. And at the same time, you know, she's so extravagant. So. She's this interesting, complex <laughs> character. So um, yes, she was spending, and that really continued throughout her entire reign. It doesn't s stop, although 
it, she redirects. Um, so here you see examples of cameos. Um, so at a certain point, her hermitage is just brimming with old master paintings. She redirects her attention to building another collection. And this is interesting. Um, it becomes a self-described affliction a, quote, species of gluttony that spreads like scabies. This is Catherine speaking about her own addiction. Um, the object of her obsession were tiny gemstones um, engraved or carved with mythological and historical motifs. And she wrote, quote, God knows the pleasure to be had from handling all these stones every day and the endless knowledge to be gleaned from it. In the end, she had 10,000 of these cameos and intaglios. So the Hermitage has you know, this incredible collection. Um, literally, she could hold them in the palm of her hand. Um, as I mentioned, she loved antiquity, and she collected these from antiquity and also from the Renaissance. And she also collected contemporary um, gemstones, carved gemstones from her own day. And she even traveled with them. She took them with her from the Winter Palace to Sarskoselo, her summer. Um, retreat. Um, and I just included this Gonzaga cameo. This actually wasn't um, a Catherine acquisition, but it's so fantastic. I had to show you. Um, it was actually a gift to her grandson, Alexander I, uh, from Napoleon's first wife, Josephine. Um, and actually, you know, Napoleon was a great art thief. Everywhere he conquered, he um, took art. And he, this was actually something that he took, and he gave it to Josephine. And Josephine gives it to Alexander um, after um, he arrives in Paris, after Napoleon's defeat. It really is one of the most beautiful. Um, it's larger than most of the other cameos, and it's really spectacular. And Catherine would have been very pleased. Well, um, so with all of these palaces that she's building, Catherine needs to furniture, right? And she needs decorative arts. Um, and so this was a huge boon to um, artisans. And she's not just um, furnishing, she's furnishing with the most fashionable, um, works by the most fashionable artisans across Europe. And hundreds of pieces of furniture arrive from um, a celebrated German a craftsman named David Röntgen. Um, and here on the top left, you see one of his writing desks. Um, and he, he supplied um, the French royals and other aristocrats through Europe. Um, but what I wanted to share with you is that when Röntgen um, arrived to meet Catherine in St. Petersburg, we were talking about this earlier, he was a member of a um, Protestant sect called the Moravian Brethren. And um, this is similar to um, German Quakers. And he brings something like 50 pieces of furniture from Germany to St. Petersburg for Catherine. He even designs something very special for her. With She loved Italian greyhounds, and he designs a desk with her favorite Italian greyhound as like a handle. And she loved his furniture. But he starts to lecture her about serfdom in the course of their meeting. And Catherine winds, winds up actually leaving the room. She didn't appreciate that. And I just want to read you about uh, their meeting briefly. Um, uh, while chatting in German, Röntgen, a member of the dissident sect known as Moravian Brethren, expressed his strong opposition to slavery, a clear reference to Russian serfdom. Catherine got up and left. 
The next day, she informed the cabinet maker that she'd buy two desks, but only pay for one. Punishment for his proselytizing, quote, your Mr. Runkin fell upon us with a cargo of furniture, which you cannot imagine, she wrote her art agent. He would also have liked to have hermitized us at the hermitage, but it is all too much a question of sheeps and lambs in this business. His mealy-mouthed manner was not to our taste. The furniture paid for, keys delivered, he had to pack up his beliefs, and all the people at the hermitage were saved from the bore of all bores. Well, he raised a very uh, raw nerve by uh, raising the issue of serfdom. And, um, but Catherine loves his furniture. And she winds up um, placing a huge order, buying everything, giving him a bonus. And um, actually, she continues to order from him. So she kind of um, forgot about the lecture that he gave her. And just below, uh, I wanted to share, this is a plate from the Wedgwood, Wedgwood Green Frog Service. Catherine the Great is an Anglophile. Um, she loves French decorative arts, um, as we talked about Sev and Rotier's silver. But politically, France is Russia's enemy. Um, and France, actually, uh, France's um, uh, war minister, the Duc de Choiseul, is her nemesis. Um, and he really is determined to really bring Catherine the Great down. So um, politically, she, she does not like France. Um, she, politically, she's allied with England. And she loves English gardens, especially. And she commissions an extraordinary, uh, it's called creamware from Josiah Wedgwood. You may know the story he um, designed for um, England's royals for Queen Charlotte. And Catherine orders a green frog service. At, and it's very interesting. So each, instead of, say, the royal crest or um, the double-headed eagle you know, that you usually see on porcelain in Russia, she asked to have a little green frog. So every piece has this little green frog. Can you see that little eye? <laughs> Up, and that's because it was meant, she meant to, put, to have this used at a palace that was in a frog marsh. She built a palace as a transit palace between the Winter Palace and Sarskoselo, somewhere that she and her court could stop you know, and rest in, on that trek. And um, so this was intended, and that explains the green frog. And Wedgwood, um, he, um, puts on every plate has a different view of an English estate. Um, so she loves this natural English style garden. Um, and you know, you may know of Capability Brown and the whole trend in garden design from the formal French geometric style gardens to this natural style. Well, Catherine falls in love with the natural English style gardens. She recruits English gardeners to Russia to replace the formal French gardens with natural gardens. So she stopped having her gardeners trim the bushes. Everything became more natural looking. And this was just one plate from that green frog service. Um, and I just also like to share this beautiful chalice on the right. This is now at Hillwood Museum um, in Washington, D.C. Uh, Marjorie Merriweather Post, the um, serial heiress, former home she collected um, Russian imperial art. Um, but this is a very interesting example of how, Ka bless you, Catherine really, um, she doesn't just commission a piece, she actually approves the design from her goldsmith. He was a Norwegian goldsmith named Ivor Bush. It's called, that's why it's called the Bush Chalice. 
and she actually lends cameos, if you, you can see them, from her own uh, collection, from the imperial um, collection that I was telling you about. She had 10,000, so it was really no problem to lend a few for this chalice. Um, and then she presents it personally. Um, she presented, this is part of a liturgical set that she presents on Alexander Nevsky's feast day in 1791. Um, and she's presenting it, it's a gift to the Holy Trinity Cathedral at the Alexander Nevsky Monastery. Um, and one of her architects built the Holy Trinity Cathedral. Well, art collecting began for Catherine as a shrewd political calculation. And I think we've seen how over the course of her reign it grew into a real genuine passion and she was very hands-on, very active in her um, art patronage. She is still collecting at the end of her life. Uh, she's taking advantage of the flooded art market. After the French Revolution, there was a lot of art on the market because the French aristocrats had to flee in a hurry. And uh, one of the artists who fled Paris right after the Revolution was named Elizabeth Vigée Lebrun. And you may know she has a retrospective right now at the Met in New York City, um, which came from Paris. But um, she was Marie Antoinette's favorite portraitist. And after the French Revolution, because of that, she has to leave quickly. And she goes and paints all of Europe's aristocracies. She goes to um, Italy, and she goes to um, Vienna, and and. Dresden, and she winds up at Catherine the Great's court in 1795, at the end of Catherine the Great's life. And the interesting thing, um, you, I actually include some of Vigée's memoirs because she describes, in her memoirs, she describes Catherine the Great in detail. She met her on many occasions. She painted Catherine's uh, granddaughters. Uh, she painted Catherine's um, uh, well, she painted Alexander's uh, wife um, on many occasions, and she was about to paint Catherine, but unfortunately, uh, Catherine dies before she had a chance to. So this is um, a lithograph after a pastel by Vigée. She paints Catherine, she does a pastel of Catherine um, posthumously after Catherine's death. But I just want to read you a description. So Vigée comes in 1795. She comes from Vienna. She is the celebrated portraitist. Um, so everyone wants their portrait done by Vigée Lebrun. You know, she's very glamorous. Um, and um, you know, so she has a reputation coming in. And she's also very used to sort of hobnobbing with royals. But she describes when she gets close to Catherine's quarters at Sarscocello. She is physically trembling, she writes. And then this is what she says, quote, in truth, the sight of this famous woman so impressed me that I found it impossible to think of anything. I could only stare at her. Firstly, I was very surprised to find her short. I had imagined her to be very tall, as great as her fame. She was also very fat. But her face was still beautiful, and she wore her white hair up framing it perfectly. Her genius seemed to rest on her forehead, which was both high and wide. Her eyes were soft and sensitive, her nose quite Greek, her color high, and her features expressive. She addressed me immediately in a voice full of sweetness, if a little throaty, 
quote, and this is Catherine, I am delighted to welcome you here, Madame. Your reputation has preceded you. I am very fond of the arts, especially painting. I am no connoisseur, but I am a great art lover. What was her Oh, Catherine? Uh -huh. Is 1762 to 1796. Like I said, um, Vijay finally um, is about to paint Catherine, and she dies in November 1796. Um, her son Paul um, succeeds her, uh, and he winds up being assassinated five years later, and her beloved grandson Alexander becomes Alexander I, and he is the czar during the Napoleon um, invasion. Um, you remember Napoleon, um, the, uh, uh, the Russians set Moscow on fire um, and Napoleon is forced to leave and, um, in the middle of the winter. Um, if you remember from War and Peace, well, that's Alexander I is the Russian czar. That's Catherine's most beloved grandson, who she named after Alexander the Great. Um, well, Catherine didn't like the moniker Great, and she rejected calls for a public monument. She wanted posterity to be her judge. In 1873, her great-grandson, Alexander II, dedicated this tribute to her. And it's um, located by the Imperial Public Library that she founded in 1795. It's right in front of um, Alexandrinsky Theater, uh, which is a beautiful theater to see a performance that was designed by Carlo Rossi. And dressed in an ermine robe, Catherine holds the imperial scepter and a laurel wreath. And you can see that below her um, are sculpted her closest advisors, including Gregory Orlov, Gregory Potemkin, her field marshal Alexander Suvorov, the poet Gavriel Derzivan, and Princess Dashkova, which, who was her um, best female friend. Some observers didn't think the dedication did justice to Russia's empress. Prince Obolensky, governor of Kharkov, wrote that Peter the Great was a Russian who's fallen in love with Germans, while Catherine, being German by nature, fell in love with Russians. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. So I'd love to, um, you know, um, hear your questions and comments, and I know a lot of you come into this lecture with a, a lot of background about Russian history in St. Petersburg, so um, I'd love to, if you have any questions, I'm happy to answer those. Well, how long did it take you to do all this research? Well, um, so the research was, I, the actual writing of the book was about a year and a half, which is very fast. And the research, I would say, was probably another nine months to a year. I got to go to St. Petersburg and Moscow to go on Catherine's trail. And um, so I went into the Hermitage with my list of all the masterworks that I wanted to see that Catherine had acquired, um, like the seated Voltaire and the paintings that I shared with you. Um, and I got to see some of her palaces. Of course, some of the palaces that she built were destroyed 
by the Nazis uh, during World War II. Um, some have been rebuilt. So I mentioned Charles Cameron, her Scottish architect, um, and she had him redo all the interiors at the Catherine Palace in beautiful neoclassical style. Well, unfortunately, all of most of that was destroyed, and so little by, by little, um, some of these interiors are being um, restored. Um, and. Yes, yeah, so the research took me back to Russia, which was really wonderful and fascinating. And I got to understand that Catherine the Great today is seen in Russia as a positive figure. You know, her reputation um, really suffered. So uh, in the last chapter of my book, as I mentioned, I wanted to write about her legacy. Um, and her legacy actually suffers right away from her, uh, the reign of her son, as I mentioned, her son um, hated her <laughs> and she hated him, and he tries very hard to erase her memory. Um, and, and after his assassination, things get better because her grandson Alexander um, was more positive to her. Um, but then Nicholas, who succeeds Alexander, Nicholas as Nicholas I, he's born the year that she dies in 1796, and he rules. I, Pretty sure it's around 30 years. He had a very long rule, very repressive. And he's actually very embarrassed by Catherine, by his grandmother. He's embarrassed by her love life. She's getting a lot of bad press across Europe for her love life. What was so scandalous, it wasn't so much that she had you know, all these um, favorites. She pretty much institutionalized the role of favorite. You know, she. Um, she took her favorites everywhere, and it wasn't like she was trying to hide these relationships. You know, this was became an institution, and they did very well. Her problem was that as she aged, she um, <laughs> she continued to take um, men who were in their twenties. She liked the younger men. I today we would call her a cougar. She just liked young men and handsome young men in their twenties. So here she is, you know, in her fifties and sixties, and it became very embarrassing. Um, as you can imagine, it was deemed very inappropriate that not only was she you know, having these, um, a string of, she had a dozen of, of these favorites that we know of, but that they were so young. Um, and they were really young enough, really at the end, to like her, the age of her um, grandsons. So uh, her very last uh, favorite was a very despicable character named Platon Zubov. You can read all about him in the book, but he's actually quite despicable. And he really, um, after the French Revolution, Catherine makes a very um, reactionary turn. She is really um, unnerved by the deaths of the, the uh, guillotine of um, Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette. And she really clamps down. She invades Poland for the last time. Uh, she dethrones her former lover, Stanislaw Poniatowski. Um, Poland ceases to exist. She had partitioned Poland two other times with Prussia and with Austria, but this was the last and final partition. And, and as I said, the country doesn't exist until after World War I. There is no Poland. Um, so, and this is really a reaction to the French Revolution, 1789. She becomes very, very reactionary. Um, she also clamps down. Um, books are censored. You know, earlier in her reign, she's um, she's encouraging publishing. She never likes um, opposition. She doesn't want people um, writing 
negatively about her reign, but she was more open. And then after the French Revolution, she starts clamping down. And her favorite at the time, this fellow Clayton Zubov, who's in his 20s, really um, encourages that. And in 1791, Gregory Potemkin dies, and you know he's really uh, been her um, advisor. Uh, they were only romantically together two years, but they continued just to be completely devoted. And uh, you even see him, she, um, she will arrest writers and publishers, and you've got Potemkin telling her to commute their sentences. Um, she, he, he's kind of, before he dies, he's telling her um, he's sort of this rational voice but once he dies, she doesn't have that anymore, and she's listening to Platon Zubov. So at the end of her reign, she's quite to the right, um, which is quite very different from how she begins. So we're almost all your sources in Russian, and when you have Yes, so, so that's, thank you. So the, <laughs> one of the challenges and fun parts about this book um, was translating from different languages, Russian, but also Italian and German and um, French, especially French. So Catherine uh, grew up in Germany, but she learns French as a young girl, and she is fluent in French. So by the time she comes to Russia and she learns Russian, but um, she, her, the language, the official language of her court is French. And she writes, as I mentioned, she writes Voltaire. She corresponds in French. Um, and Voltaire even says to someone that he thought that Catherine was a native speaker, judging by how good her French was. And her French was that good. Um, so for me, um, the challenge was um, reading. And then it turns out that 18th century French is a little bit different than modern French. Um, and unfortunately, I have, I'm um, a docent at the Getty Museum in Los Angeles. And a couple of my colleagues at the Getty, do fellow docents, um, one is from France and one is from Germany. And they helped me a lot to translate um, her letters. And so um, a lot of what you'll read in the book was translated by my two friends. And then Italian, I also had, I know someone who um, teaches Italian in uh, Wisconsin at the university there. And she helped me um, because, as I mentioned, one of Catherine's favorite architects was Giacomo Corangi from um, uh, northern Italy. And um, it's very interesting because um, one of the more fascinating things that I came across was in Quarenghi's archive in Bergamo, Italy, um, they recently discovered Catherine's uh, own sketches. So she sent Corangi her own hand-done sketches with notes in French of exact um, things that she wanted on their various projects. And Corangi was so flattered that she, the Empress of Russia was writing to him that he kept those with his own documents and drawings. And so my friend helped me translate um, these from French. And um, let's see, and if I could, I'll just see if I can read you, um, if I can find the, It. Well, um, I seem to have lost my mark. But basically, um, it's very fun. She's actually telling Korengi, um, she's giving him instructions. Specifically, she says, um, to make sure that the heater is placed outside. And the workers are not to come 
through the main doors there to climb through the windows. So she's really micromanaging this project, um, which is really interesting if you think about she's running this enormous empire and she's giving her architect very, very specific instructions about you know how the workers are to come through the window and where she wants the heater placed and not to cut down any trees because you know she wants all the trees there. So um, I think that really demonstrates just how um, involved and how much she really enjoyed architecture and art. That these pursuits were really genuine for her. Oh, thank you so much for coming. I really appreciate your coming. I hope you enjoy the book as much as I enjoyed writing it.